If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John in that first chapter. And in a moment, we'll pick up where we left off uh, last week there in verse 43. A few weeks ago, I came across a video on one of my social media platforms. Now, I'm a football fan. Any other football fans in the room? Now, my allegiance is primarily with I enjoy college football, Roll Tide. Um, I know I just I said that from the pulpit. I can't believe, right? Um, <laughs> but I do follow a little bit of the NFL, too. As the college players that I have liked have moved on to the professional level, I've enjoyed watching some of the NFL football, too. So a few weeks ago, I see this caption to this video, and here's what it says. Eli Manning went undercover at Penn State as walk-on Chad Powers, and it's absolute gold. How many of you have seen the video that I'm talking about? A couple of you know what I'm talking about. If you're a football fan and you haven't had a chance to see it yet, I want to encourage you, go home, look it up. It's absolutely hilarious. But even if you're not a football fan, you can appreciate this story. You see, Eli Manning is a retired football quarterback, NFL quarterback, spent 16 years in the NFL, all of them with the New York Giants, took the Giants to the Super Bowl twice, won both times, and won MVP of the Super Bowl both times. He's a four-time NFL Pro Bowler. I share all of that with you just so you know the level of play that Eli Manning is capable of. So apparently Eli Manning hired some Hollywood makeup artists to disguise him. He put on a wig and tried to look a little bit younger, tried to, um, and then went to Penn State University and tried out in their walk-on tryouts. Uh, now, the head coach was in on the gig. James Franklin was in on the gig. But his assistant coaches, and obviously the players were not either. You can tell that from the video. Now, there's some things that makeup just can't disguise. For example, makeup cannot make you run any faster. And let's just say that Eli Manning's time in the 40 was considerably slower than all the other athletes that were out there. But perhaps the most entertaining part of the whole video for me to watch was the reaction of the other players as this Chad Powers began throwing the ball. It was quite obvious that they were dealing with someone with talent. In the videos, uh, one of the coaches says, and I quote, I want to sign the Chad Powers guy. I think I see something in him. <laughs> One of the other players says, who is this guy? You can tell they're quite shocked that someone with this level of talent isn't already playing somewhere. He isn't already on a team as a scholarship quarterback somewhere. At the end of the video, at the end of the tryouts, James Franklin, the coach, calls all the players together. And it's then that he has Chad Powers take off the wig and the makeup and reveal his true identity to the players and the coaches. And I'll tell you, watching their reactions is hilarious. Uh, it's funny to watch them recognize that Chad Powers' true identity was something far greater than they ever could have imagined. In our text this morning, you're going to see traces of that in the story that we'll encounter today. You're going to get to watch the identity of Jesus revealed, and you're going to get to see how a person might respond to that revelation. 
Now, if you've been with us the last few months, you've walked through us through the gospel, this first chapter in the gospel of John. You've seen the picture that the apostle has painted of Jesus. You've heard the witness of John the Baptist as he declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You've even seen John the Baptist's disciples leave him to go follow Jesus because of what only Jesus can do, as Pastor Howard shared last week. This week, we'll conclude our study of this first chapter and see just how the gospel writer answers this question, who is this Jesus. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 43. Look over there. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. I want to pause there because in our text this morning, there are going to be three things about the identity of Jesus that we see. And the first one's wrapped up in just those first two verses. And it's this, Jesus is prophecy fulfilled. Jesus is prophecy fulfilled. When we come to verse 43, we're introduced to another disciple, a man by the name of Philip. And as we saw in the text, Philip is from the same place as Andrew and Peter were. The, the same disciples last week that we saw left John the Baptist to go follow Jesus. There's this obvious connection between them. And now, there is something different, though, from Philip than was true of Andrew and John. You see, Andrew and John sought out Jesus. When John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Andrew and John left John the Baptist to go follow Jesus. But Jesus takes the initiative in seeking out Philip. Philip didn't seek out Jesus. Jesus sought out Philip. And once he finds him, he issues this one simple invitation. Follow me. That's all he says. Follow me. That, though, is the essence of what it means to be called a disciple of Jesus. It's exactly what we see Jesus sharing in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 16, verse 24, when he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says this, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, being a disciple is not simply following a list of beliefs. It's not being, being a disciple of Jesus is not just mentally agreeing with some facts. Being a disciple of Jesus is a call to surrender. It's a call to lay down our lives and follow Jesus. You see, Jesus' invitation to Philip was not simply believe this. It was follow me. If you and I have believed in Jesus, it must be evident in the way that we live our lives, in obedience to his spirit and in obedience to his word. So Jesus calls Philip to become one of his disciples. Now, John doesn't record the entire conversation that existed between Jesus and Philip, but this much we can know, this much from the text we can discern. Philip was absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. 
He's absolutely convinced that Jesus is a Messiah. You say, well, how do we know that? Look at what Philip says to Nathanael about Jesus in verse 45. We have found him, here, catch this, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. This is Philip's way of kind of grabbing his arms all around the entire Old Testament and saying, this is the Messiah. So you have in verse 45, Philip telling Nathaniel, we have found the one we've been waiting for. Now, if you remember from last week, you remember what Messiah means. Messiah means anointed one. And it had come to refer to the promised rescuer, the redeemer that God had said, I will send to deliver the people from sin repeatedly. And throughout the entire Old Testament, God promises his people that he will send a rescuer. He will send a redeemer, one who will save the people from their sins. And this redeemer would be the anointed one. And so Philip, when he references Moses and the prophets, it's simply of his way of saying, this is the anointed one. This is the Messiah. What did God say about the Messiah and what Moses wrote? There's literally hundreds of passages we could go to. Let me give you a small sample, just three verses this morning. Genesis chapter three, verse 15, when God pronounces the punishment for sin upon the serpent, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first indication that God would send a rescuer, the first time he says, I will send a redeemer here in Genesis three fifteen, Genesis chapter 12 Beginning in verse one, on through verse three, it says, the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And notice this, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's because from the seed of Abraham would come the Messiah. All nations of the earth would be blessed through the Messiah. Then in Numbers chapter 24, verses 17 and 19 says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. Out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. There are more, but you get the point. Even through Moses, God had said, I will send a rescuer. I will, rescind, I will send a redeemer. But what about the prophets? That's Moses, but what about the prophets? Again, a number of passages. Let me give you just two. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And in Micah 5.2, it says this, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. There are over 300 prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Literally 300 and more than 300. 
What we can know for sure this morning, at least from our text, is this. Whatever Philip saw, whatever Philip heard, whatever Philip experienced, whatever Jesus said to him in those moments, whatever it was, Philip was absolutely convinced that all of those promises that God had said about the Messiah, they were now fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, it's important to note what Philip does in verse 45. As he takes all of those prophecies, all that was written in Moses and all in the prophets, he takes all of those prophecies and he places them on one man, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He is crystal clear and incredibly specific with who it is that fulfills all of these prophecies. It's not generic, it's specific. Philip uses the name Jesus, which may have been a very common name in that day, but Philip narrows that identification down so there is no mistaking which Jesus he's referring to. First, he says that it's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a really small town in that day, probably more than 1,000 to 2,000 people. Philip narrows that identification down by narrowing down where he's from. But then he narrows it down even further when he says, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He says, when you find a Jesus who's from Nazareth, whose father is Joseph, you've found the Messiah. I know you're sitting there thinking, why are you making such a big deal out of this, Pastor Joe? Here's why. Most of our Jewish friends would tell us that we are still waiting for the Messiah, that he has not yet arrived. He has not yet come. But the clear testimony of Philip and of every other New Testament writer is simply this. We are not still waiting for the Messiah. He has come, he is come, and it is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You know what I find so compelling? You know what in this text just really reaches out, grips my heart and won't let go? It's what we see the disciples doing immediately when they become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. We saw it last week with Andrew, and we see it this week with Philip. What is it that they do the moment they become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah? They gotta find someone to tell. I've gotta go tell somebody. I know who Jesus is. I know who the Messiah is. I found him, and I can't wait to tell somebody about him. They didn't keep it to themselves. They went and they shared it with someone Andrew went to Peter. Philip goes straight to Nathaniel. In both circumstances, you see this inner compulsion, this I have to share Jesus with someone I know and love. They didn't do it after they signed up for an evangelism training class. They didn't do it after they took Christian Apologetics 101 to answer whatever questions and objections might arise. They didn't wait till they knew more theology. They simply went and they found and they told someone about Jesus, the one God promised to send. You see, true disciples of Jesus go looking for someone to share him with. So who are you looking to share Jesus with? Who is it that God has placed in your life that you are actively trying to share Jesus with? 
How are you praying for them every day? How are you asking God to open up opportunities for you to tell them about him, share him? How are you seeking to create those opportunities to share him with them? It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be major. It doesn't have to be long and drawn out. It could be something as simple as a text message that says, how can I pray for you today? It can be small. We don't have to make it so complicated. You know I've found something to be true. Most Christians really want to tell people about Jesus. They want to tell their lost family members and friends about Jesus. They really do. They either just don't make time for it or they let their fear of what questions or fear of rejection that they might receive keep them from sharing. And listen, I want you to hear me. Questions are natural. Objections and rejection, it's natural. In fact, look at what happens to Philip when he tries to share with Nathanael about Jesus. Look at verse 46. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Now, here's the second thing I want you to see about the identity of Jesus. Jesus is sincerely questioned. He is sincerely questioned. Now, a lot is made of Nathanael's question in verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And a lot is made of it because in the original language, it's actually in a different word order. In the original language, in the Greek, out of Nazareth, that which occurs at the end actually occurs at the beginning. And now writers would do that because they want to draw emphasis. They want to draw your attention to that. So if we were actually reading this, In the original language, it would say, out of Nazareth, can any good come? It would draw emphasis to that location. You see, it wasn't exactly prestigious to be from Nazareth. Nazareth was in Galilee, and it was not prestigious to be from Galilee, but it was even less prestigious to be from Nazareth. Nathaniel knew that. You see, Nathaniel was from a city that was nearby Nazareth. Nathaniel was from a city called Cana. About three miles, a little over three miles away from Nazareth was Cana. And people in Cana would make fun of and they would talk bad about people from Nazareth. And so so, some commentators want to make much of this rivalry and this prejudice that existed between residents of Cana and residents of Nazareth. They wanted to claim that that's what motivates Nathaniel's question about Jesus. They want to say it's Nathaniel saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They want to make much of that prejudice. But I don't think that's the case. And let me tell you why. Two really big reasons. First, and in my mind, most importantly, look at what Jesus says about Nathaniel in verse 47. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is, notice this, no deceit. No deceit. This is Jesus' declaration about the character of Nathanael. And so therefore, since it's what Jesus believes about Nathanael, it carries a lot of more weight in my mind. Now, what is it that Jesus says about Nathanael? 
He is an Israelite in whom is no deceit. That word that's translated deceit there in the New King James literally means bait for fish. Bait for fish. And it's really a clear reference to an ancestor of Nathaniel. Go all the way back to the patriarch, Jacob. You see back in Genesis chapter 27, when Jacob tricks his father Isaac into giving him the blessing that belongs to the firstborn instead of giving it to Esau, here's what Isaac says about Jacob. Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau responds by saying, is he not rightly named Jacob? You see, the name Jacob means deceitful or deceiver. So as Nathanael is walking to Jesus, he hears Jesus say to him, behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Jesus is saying that Nathanael isn't deceitful like Jacob was. Nathanael isn't deceitful. He's sincere. I don't believe there's any prejudice or any ill will behind his question to Philip. I don't believe he's being demeaning when he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So that's one reason. Jesus' declaration of his character is one reason. But there is another reason. Do you know how many prophecies say that the Messiah will come from Nazareth? Zero. Absolutely zero. In fact, Nazareth isn't mentioned anywhere in the entire Old Testament. Nowhere. I think Nathaniel is sincerely struggling to reconcile what he's hearing from Philip about the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth? What prophecy tells us that the Messiah will be from Nazareth? In fact, what prophecy tells us that there's any prophet a lesser prophet. What prophecy tells us that any prophet would be from Nazareth? I believe Nathaniel is sincerely struggling and sincerely questioning what Philip is telling him about Jesus. And here's why I think that's important for you and me today, for us to think and consider. You see, you and I live in a world where beliefs that are presented that are contrary to popular opinion or contrary to societal norms. When you present beliefs that are contrary to what our society says, it's not very well received, is it? We've even coined a phrase that we use to refer to this phenomenon in our society. We call it cancel culture, right? Say something that society disagrees with, you're canceled. Canceled from a program, canceled from a job, canceled from a group of friends, canceled from a leadership position, maybe even canceled from your own family. Our society is quick to dismiss any idea they disagree with and then get hostile with the person that's presenting it. Now, because that's true, and because you and I have seen that over and over and over again, we've come to think and believe that everyone's going to respond that way. In fact, that might be when you and I come to verse 46 and we read that question, we automatically assume the worst of Nathaniel. It might be us hearing him say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because we know that's the trend in our society. But it's not necessarily true. You see, I believe there really are still sincere people in our world today. 
There are sincere people in our world who do not know Jesus. And those sincere people, they've got some sincere questions. And they've got some sincere struggles. And they've got some sincere objections. But if you and I are automatically assuming the worst about them and their motives when they present us with their questions or their challenges or their objections, if we're assuming the worst about their motives, then we're gonna miss out on some opportunities that God would have us to have meaningful conversations with them. And we may even miss out on an opportunity to share Jesus with someone and see them come to faith in Christ. So let me encourage you to let go of some of your skepticism and make room for those sincere seekers that God may have placed in your life. Don't automatically assume their questions or objections are personal attacks. They may be sincere questions. And don't assume that they are attacks anyway because when they attack, they're not attacking us. They're attacking Christ. So what do you do when those questions come? What do you do when those questions or objections are come? You, let me encourage you to follow the example of Philip. What did Philip do when Nathaniel came to him with this question? He simply said, come and see. Come and see. He didn't argue with him. He didn't pull out a thousand page dissertation on why Jesus is the Messiah. He didn't even pull out all the arguments he learned in Apologetics 101. All he did was say, come and see. And in doing so, Philip followed the example of Jesus. You see, just last week in verse 39, this is what we see Jesus doing to those disciples. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. Listen, there is nothing, and I mean nothing wrong with apologetics or going through apologetics training. In fact, we include apologetics training in our Sunday night program that we do for our students. I think there's great value and learning how to be able to answer the questions and objections of people in our society today. But even as I say that, I want you to understand something very, very important about apologetics and about people in general. Very few people, if any, are ever won to Jesus by argument. Very few. Now I do believe we should answer people's questions. And I do believe we should answer their objections honestly and truthfully. But we need to understand that only God can change a person's heart and mind. Only God. That's why it's so important that you and I spend so much time talking to God about people that we do talking to people about God. Our students have heard me say this so much they can probably recite this in their sleep. But I like to tell them this. You should spend twice as much time talking to God about your friends as you do talking to your friends about God. Because only God changes hearts and only God changes minds. You can have every argument in the world down pat and it will not, will not save a person's soul. Only God wins. God changes hearts and minds. That's his job, not ours. So what do we do? We follow the example of Philip. We issue an invitation. Come and see. Come investigate the claims of Jesus for yourself. And I am absolutely convinced that anyone who makes an honest, genuine, sincere commitment to investigate the claims of Christ will find that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's done what he says he will do. We don't leave people alone to figure it out for themselves. In fact, I would encourage you, walk with them 
through their questions. Walk with them through their investigation. Be available to them and trust them to Christ. I would say this, if you're here this morning and you have sincere questions, sincere challenges, we'd love to help you with those. If you're in this room, before you leave today, find me. Find Pastor Andy. Find one of our staff. We want to help you with those. If you're online, uh, reach out to us. Send a message through social media. Use that form we had earlier. Let us know that you've got questions. If you have questions, we are accessible to you. We want to work with you through them. We want to dialogue with you. See what happens next between Nathaniel and Jesus. Look at verse 48. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these, And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Here's the final thing we see about the identity of Jesus from our text. Jesus is deity declared. He is deity declared. What we read about and what we see in verse 48 is Jesus' supernatural knowledge. When Nathaniel asks him how he knows him, he is legitimately confused. He wants to know how Jesus knows that he is an Israelite in whom is no deceit. And so what does Jesus do? He tells him something only Nathaniel would know. Now, there's been a lot of speculation by theologians about what is meant by Nathaniel being under the fig tree. Some believe it was a reference to the Jewish custom that rabbis would have of going underneath a a vine or a fig or olive tree to study the scriptures. It was an indication of their diligence in studying the word of God and in expecting God to do something. Others speculated that Nathaniel had probably had some sort of recent religious experience underneath a fig tree that only Nathaniel and God knew about. Whatever the case may be, it had to be incredibly significant, incredibly significant. You say, well, Pastor Joe, why did it have to be so significant? Because whatever it was, Nathaniel was convinced by what Jesus said that he wasn't just a prophet. He was something more than a prophet. He is God. Personally, I think it had to be something that only God would know about that Jesus said Whatever it was, notice Nathaniel's reaction. Verse 49, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nathaniel is saying, you are more than a mere man. You are God incarnate. We find both of these titles that Nathaniel refers to Jesus in Psalm chapter two. Psalm two is a messianic psalm. It's about the, the Messiah as he's victorious over his enemies and as he rules as king over, his, over the kingdom of God. In Psalm 2, verse 7, it says this, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The psalmist says that the Messiah would be the son of God. 
But verse six says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The the Messiah would be the ruler, the king over his kingdom. And so when Nathanael identifies Jesus as the king of Israel, he is saying the man that I am looking face to face and eyeball to eyeball with is no ordinary man. He is God. Jesus takes this description of Nathanael from Nathanael, and he kind of ups the ante a little bit, so to speak. He says, you believe I'm the Messiah because I told you I saw you when you were under the fig tree? Buddy, you ain't seen nothing yet. And so he says this in verse five, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And with that, Jesus again goes back to Genesis and back to the ancestor, Jacob. Only this time we're not going to chapter 27, we're going to chapter 28 when Jacob is on the run, when he's fleeing from his brother Esau who wants to kill him because he stole that birthright. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob has been traveling all day, a distance of about 43 miles through the wilderness. And he comes to a a place where there's a lot of rocks and he takes one of those rocks and he places it and he lays on that rock, uses the rock as his pillow. I mean, how tired do you have to be to use a rock as a pillow? exhausted and then in verse 12 it tells us that Jacob had a dream and here's what it says in verse 12 then he dreamed and behold a ladder was set up on the earth and his top reached to heaven and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it and we get down to verse 16 Jacob wakes up and he says this surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it how awesome is this place This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. That was in John, Genesis 28. You know what Jesus says in John 1? He looks at Nathanael and he says, I am the ladder. I'm the ladder. I'm the mediator between God and man. I'm the access that man has to God only through me. I am the access between earth and heaven. See, church, Jesus is the promised Messiah, the mediator between God and man. He is the one who lived the perfect righteous life that God requires from us. He was unjustly condemned for sins he did not commit, but he willingly went to the cross to pay the price for those sins. He died on that cross so that he could offer you and me forgiveness and peace and eternal life and adopt us into the family. He died so that he could offer us the greatest offer that's ever been made. And that offer is available for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've gone, no matter how far you've gone, God's forgiveness is available. There's no sin too great, no sin too small. You are here today Do not have Christ as Savior. You need Jesus. You need that access. He alone is the mediator between God and man. And so if you're here today and you haven't received Christ, whether you're in this room or online, my invitation to you is simply the same invitation that Philip gave to Nathaniel. Come and see. Come and see this, Jesus. Come and see him for yourself. Come and know him for yourself. Come and see how good it is to receive his forgiveness and mercy and grace and peace and joy. If you have received him, 
and as many of you in this room I know have, then I want to challenge you with the example that you see from Philip. And the, the phrase for you is not come and see, but the phrase for you is go and tell. Go and tell. Go and tell your family. Go and tell your friends. Go and tell your coworkers. Go and tell your neighbors. Go and tell your teammates. Go and tell everyone that God gives you the opportunity to interact with. Go and tell. You know, we all love to share good news. Whether it's a promotion we got at work, a new addition to our family, an award or an accomplishment we received, we love to tell people we love to share good news. Church, let me remind you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest news on the planet. So why in the world are we shutting our mouths? And why in the world are we not going and telling until all have heard? Go and tell. Lord, I thank you this morning that you've given us your word that we might know you not just know stories or historical facts or be able to present biblical truth, not just know about you, God, but to really know you in relationship, to be forgiven of our sin, adopted into your family, given the spirit as our inheritance. God, thank you. There's not a one of us who deserved it. We all have fallen short of your standard of perfection, And so, God, if there's even one person within the sound of my voice this morning that is not yet trusted in Jesus, if there's a seeker among us, then my prayer is that you would remove whatever obstacle stand in the way of them coming to Christ. Let today be the day of salvation. Let today be those barriers be brought down. And let today be the day they trust in Christ. And God, I pray that you would give us a compassionate heart, that you would help us not become so cynical and skeptical and jaded, for we live in a world where that's easy to fall into. But Lord, there are some genuine seekers out there who are sincerely questioning who you are and what you've done and what's all, all this stuff all about. And so help us interact with them and engage them in dialogue and discussion in a winsome way. And God, help us that the life that we live would testify to the God we serve. For you are God. Jesus is deity declared. May it be so of the lives that we live and may it be so with these lips that you've given. May we share Jesus every opportunity we get that our community our state, our nation, even our world would be transformed by the power of your spirit and the truth of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name.